0: Eye on Arabia, reporting, analysis, and the occasional surprise from author and Middle East specialist Joseph Browdy. Over the past few days, Moroccan King Mohammed VI made his first official visit to Washington since Barack Obama took office and met with the President in the White House. I had the chance to do some writing and broadcasting about what that visit meant for Moroccans as well as Americans and thought I'd share it with you today. The first is an interview on the BBC World Service about the politics of the White House meeting. The second is an article I wrote for Tablet Magazine about what it's like to be the only Jewish host of a program on Arab airwaves heard nationally across the Kingdom of Morocco.
1: And I've been discussing the meeting that's going on in Washington with uh, author Joseph Browdy. He actually, he's based in the US, but he hosts a weekly programme in Arabic on Moroccan radio. So he's really very well placed for this, sees both sides of it. Uh, And what are both sides trying to get out of the meeting, I asked him. And first of all, what is the, the goal of the United States?
0: Well, yesterday, Kerry and Hegel, the secretaries of state and defense, met with the king and asked him to help them in Libya, where they're struggling to really to build a new army from scratch, uh, together with Italy and Turkey and having trouble uh, with it. And the Moroccans have some experience training soldiers from the neighborhood and vetting them, which is also a big problem. Uh, So that's one issue. And uh, others include the Western Sahara and perhaps the president of the United States strained relations with the Gulf states, uh, where the Moroccan king is uh, very close to most of the, uh, the leaders there. And from Morocco's point of view? They signed a free trade agreement with the U.S. more than 10 years ago, but a decade later, most of their trade and investment is with Africa below the Sahara. So what they want to do is turn these bilateral relations into trilateral relations, where the U.S. can incentivize and sweeten these partnerships, and they feel that the U.S. can be most useful to them economically there.
1: You heard Novena's uh, account just a moment ago of you know, the stability, really, in Morocco. What's your explanation for that stability?
0: In addition to what your reporter said, I would add that it's a 300-year-old uh, dynasty that is woven into the folklore uh, of the culture, the bedtime stories. And so he enjoys a sort of a legitimacy that transcends immediate policies and immediate problems. Uh, He also fostered some degree of national reconciliation through a commission modeled roughly around South Africa, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that uh, sort of broke with the excesses of the past. And that probably went a long way in building a stronger and warmer relationship between the state and the society.
1: Are there no jihadi elements in Morocco?
0: Moroccans had a bitter experience, their own 9-11 with triple suicide bombings, Uh, but they have their own approach to uh, sort of tweaking the fabric of Islamic education and staunch uh, counter-terrorist measures that has largely managed to clean up this problem. And of course, what happens below the Sahel is uh, of grave concern to the US and Morocco, and perhaps some of Morocco's experiences are relevant there too.
1: Is the, is the king seen as a, a U.S.-backed man? You know, is is, is 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 he seen like you know, let's say Mubarak was seen in Egypt as as, as someone who's there because the Americans support him, or is it not like that?
0: Well, the U.S. alliance is strong and very public. It's not de-emphasized. And it's actually probably something that boosts his credibility and legitimacy. That is, the strong U.S. partnership is something that's well-liked in the kingdom. It probably would not be so in a Mubarak-like state. uh, But in Morocco, you know, a handshake, warm relations, these things are, are very significant to the population.
1: And that was uh, Joseph Browdy there on that meeting between the King of Morocco and the President of the United States.
0: Sunday night for me is always Moroccan radio night. From a home office in Brooklyn, surrounded by echo-absorbing foam, I write a commentary in Arabic about the week in Arab politics and then read it into a microphone. Next, I upload the sound file to a studio in Casablanca where a producer adds the theme song and it airs the following day to an audience of 1.75 million under the title Risalet, New York. Letter from New York. رسالة نيويورك مع الكاتب الصحفي والمحلي السياسي جوزيف براودي. مُستمعي الكرام تحية من نيويورك. أقعدت في البحرين في وقت My show has the distinction of being the only radio program hosted by a Jew on Arab airwaves that doesn't originate in Israel. But more than three years after the broadcast debuted, my Muslim audience now finds it ordinary rather than aberrant to hear a Jewish voice opine on Arab affairs in their mother tongue. In numerous Arab countries, such a situation would be revolutionary. But in Morocco, where the leadership has proactively nurtured Muslim-Jewish understanding for years, it's merely one step forward among many. Given that the listenership has begun to spread beyond the kingdom's borders, moreover, Rizal at New York presents a case in point of how the broader Moroccan policies that keep me on the air can help spread tolerance in other places where Arabic is spoken too. A century ago, the region's demographics were considerably more diverse and considerably more Jewish. A million Arabic-speaking Jews still live throughout the region, In some Arab cities, almost every Muslim knew at least one. Jews formed a professional class, deeply engaged in mainstream culture wherever they were allowed to be. Iraq's National Orchestra, composed overwhelmingly of Jewish musicians, broadcast a live radio performance across the region each week into the 1940s. Leila Murad, the Barbara Streisand of Egypt, starred in some of the most popular Arabic movie musicals ever made. Jews published prolifically in Lebanese and Syrian media and contributed to the major newspapers of Baghdad, where even a Zionist daily, with reporting from Palestine, was licensed in the 1920s. In Morocco, Jews began publishing newspapers as soon as printing presses became available. The Hadidi Brothers of Casablanca, Pinhas al and David Shriqi of Tangier, and one of the country's few female journalists, Rahma Toledano, were all well known to Muslim and Jewish readers. Some published in Spanish or French, then the languages of politics and commerce, while others wrote for a narrower audience in Judeo-Arabic, the Moroccan equivalent of Yiddish, printed in Hebrew block characters. It is, of course, hard even to picture such a media landscape in the Middle East today, when the great emptying of the Arab world's Jewish communities is slipping out of living memory. But through the most difficult years of the 1930s and 1940s, the Moroccan monarchy ensured that its country remained a haven for Jews. In 1941, Sultan Mohammed V rejected calls from the Vichy French occupiers of his country to turn over the 265,000-strong Jewish population to the Nazis. After World War II and Israel's creation, Jews remained in Morocco for longer than co-religionists elsewhere in the region. But those who stayed understood that the price of their security was to keep a much lower profile. By the 1960s, barely any Jews remained active in the media. The few who continued writing were leftist dissidents, and by the 1970s, they too had put down their pens. Morocco's Jewish community now numbers around 5,000, a shadow of its former self, yet the largest in the Arab world. Though Moroccan cities, towns, and even mountain villages are full of Muslim grandparents who speak fondly of the Jews they knew as children, few of today's youth have even met one in the flesh. Much of what they hear about Jews comes from regional satellite television networks that use the protocols of the elders of Zion to explain Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. The monarchy has taken steps to offer a corrective to these ideas. King Mohammed VI has called for a negotiated settlement between Israel and the Palestinians, even as he condemns Israeli settlement building and human rights violations. Moroccan schoolchildren learn about their country's Jewish heritage. Hebrew and Arabic hymns are performed side by side in festivals of sacred music. Synagogues in the country are fiercely protected, and some have been publicly rededicated in joint ventures between the Jewish community and the state. In a 2011 speech, the King countered the scourge of Arab Holocaust denial by describing the tragedy as, quote, a wound to the collective memory, which we know is engraved in one of the most painful chapters of the collective history of mankind, and called on Moroccans to observe Yom HaShoah. Next week, King Mohammed VI will meet with President Obama in Washington, D.C., his first official visit since 2002. They are expected to discuss Syria, Iran, the rising al-Qaeda threat in the African Sahel, and the status of talks between Israelis and Palestinians. On the latter issue, the monarch can offer resources that could prove invaluable to a negotiated settlement. As chairman of the Arab League's Jerusalem Committee, he is an advocate for the rights of Palestinians whom Ramallah trusts. In the Gulf, heads of state regard him as a member of their families. For decision-makers in Israel, he is first and foremost the grandson of Vichy-era Sultan Muhammad V. He is also the only Arab leader to have legislated equal rights and protections for his country's Jewish minority in a new constitution and a reliable intermediary between Israel and those Arab states with which it lacks formal relations. As for Israeli voters, a million of whom are either natives of Morocco or have a Moroccan-born parent or grandparent, he embodies a tradition with which many still identify, a feeling of attachment that goes hand-in-hand with their pride in Israel. Above all, he is a head of state who has made his personal affinity for Jews into formal domestic policy and won over a large swath of the population to the values he espouses. These efforts are part of a larger, ongoing relationship between Moroccans in and out of government and Jews in Israel and the diaspora, Ashkenazim and Mizrahim alike. As Shmuel Segev, a former Israeli military intelligence officer, described in a recent book, the two sides have quietly made common cause in the halls of Congress, worked together in the Middle East to mitigate disputes between Israel and its neighbors, and fostered security and intelligence cooperation. Looking ahead, they recognized the urgency of brokering a Palestinian-Israeli peace settlement, but also know that hostility toward Jews in the broader Arab-Muslim world will not end with the establishment of a Palestinian state. With only a few thousand Jews left in Arab lands, the question of how to build and nurture new emotional bonds with hundreds of millions of Arab Muslims remains open. In 2007-2008, I spent half a year in Casablanca researching a book on Arab security services. The government gave me permission to embed with a unit of the federal police in order to learn about its operations firsthand. I watched interrogations, accessed case files, and followed night forays into the city's shanty towns. The picture that emerged was far from rosy, but it ultimately reflected progress toward police reform. Entering this fraught environment was feasible only because I had spent years learning Arabic and living in Arab countries. What drew me to the region and language was a feeling of deep personal affinity. My mother was born in Baghdad. She and her family fled Iraq, along with 125,000 other Jews, in 1951, leaving 2,700 years of history in the country behind. My family still mourns the loss of friendships in Baghdad and savors memories from that city's better times. My study of the Moroccan police was facilitated by Ahmed Shari, the owner of a media company in Casablanca that published a weekly news magazine and held a stake in the country's third-largest daily newspaper, al Hadath al-Maghribiya. Ahmed is a Moroccan Muslim patriot who calls on Jews and Muslims to team up, and practices what he preaches. He sends his children to a local branch of the Alliance Israelite schools, where the ratio of Jewish to Muslim students is ninety ten, and everyone studies Hebrew as well as Arabic. On visits to the United States, where he sits on the boards of trustees of several think tanks, including the Center for Strategic and International Studies and Foreign Policy Research Institute, he also devotes time to connecting American Jewish leaders with Moroccan movers in support of peace efforts between Israel and its Arab neighbors. In 2010, two years after I'd departed Morocco, Ahmed put in a bid for one of 10 national FM broadcasting licenses tendered by the government. They were to be the first privately owned radio networks in the kingdom's history. He won his license and founded Med Radio which provides a lively mix of current affairs, cultural, religious, and family programming in a combination of Arabic and French, and that supports the egalitarian values he believes in. On a visit to New York that June, Shara'i invited me to contribute a weekly commentary to Med Radio in Arabic. I could broadcast according to my conscience, he assured me. Asked whether he thought my Jewish background would be a liability for him, he expressed confidence that Moroccans were ready for a Jewish broadcaster. The audience would judge the segment on its merits, he insisted. I have been on the air every week since then, except for one month off each Ramadan, when programming is predominantly religious. I started out reporting cautiously about the region, But as supportive messages from the audience began to reach me via social media, I felt encouraged to loosen the format. I reported from drug rehab clinics in Egypt and Bahrain, taped and parsed jihadist sermons from a Salafi mosque in Tunis, and asked disaffected Iranians to describe domestic repression in their country. Voices from Washington and Tel Aviv have helped demystify the workings of both cities. Via Skype, I take listeners farther afield, earlier this month to South Korea, where the director of the National Broadcasting Company's Arabic service described in fluent Arabic the strategy of her country's outreach to Arab publics. As an outgrowth of my friendship with the production team in Casablanca, I've also been able to migrate narrative and sound techniques used on American public radio to the Moroccan airwaves for the first time. Ain ala Tunis. I on Tunis, an hour-long documentary based on my visit to the country, fuses Tunisian poetry, folklore, music, and street sounds with the voices of Tunisian politicians and preachers. <laughs>
1: أهل ستيب سعيد قلوين نحكي معاهم قالوا لي أكثر من الشغل ومن كل شيء يحبوا على الحرية وعالكرامة فبدلوا سيفة الثورة هذه معا النهضة ردوها كما ثورة للرجوع للقواعد الإسلامية والعربية والكونسيرباتيزي زمان اللي كنا فوار رجال أحرار لنخاف الثلج وللنار لحنينا الروس ونكسنا ولابسنا يدينا القهار وللحصنا صبابة لعفسنا when
0: the subject matter touches specifically Jewish subjects, I speak openly about my background. In a segment about Jewish communities in Arab lands last February that featured the voices of Arabic-speaking Jews, as well as an Islamist calling for their murder, I asked listeners to imagine the psychological impact of his rhetoric on Jews as well as on the young Muslims who pray at his mosque. The program drew a favorable response and a phone call to the network from the Moroccan Minister of Information, who is a member of the governing Islamist Party of Justice and Development. He conveyed curiosity about the program, I'm told, but no complaints. MedRadio, now the most popular privately owned network in the kingdom, has provided a conduit for a friendly Jewish voice to build a relationship with a large Muslim audience. As such, it has achieved a meaningful force multiplier effect in a situation of vast demographic asymmetry. Such efforts are no substitute for the face-to-face contact between Muslims and Jews that once typified urban life in Morocco, but Twitter, Facebook, and Skype now enable a broadcaster's relationship with an audience to become a two-way street. I feel very fortunate to live in a time when such connectivity is possible and never miss a chance to take advantage of it. Meanwhile, the program has more than 5,000 listeners outside Morocco, primarily in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, via their smartphones. A few of them are producers from pan-Arab TV networks, such as Al Arabiya, who went on to host me as a commentator for their audiences, which number in the tens of millions. Though Arabic-speaking Jews from Israel have appeared on pan-Arab television before, they have mostly been confined to debates on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. To break out of that hardball-style squawk box and win acceptance as a voice on a range of Arabic and Islamic issues is, I feel, a step forward. And for me, it was the unique cultural environment of Morocco that made it possible to take that step. You've been listening to Eye on Arabia. If you'd like to learn more or get in touch, follow me on Twitter. J O S E P H B R A U D E, or browse www.josephbroudy.com. On my homepage, you'll also find a link to my weekly podcast in Arabic, Risalat New York, as well as links to books, articles, and upcoming events.